This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. It's me, Erica, your host. And today I'm talking with my friend, Kira Davis. She's in California where it's gorgeous all the time. And she's a writer, an actress, a movie director, a podcast host, an occasional guest on network television to give you her opinions on all the things. But most importantly, she's been someone I've been privileged to call a friend for a decade. Kira brings the fire on a few hot issues today, including support for the president, race relations in the United States, and why she went from being an anti-gun pro-choice socialist to a free market pro Second Amendment pro-life conservative. She does it all with grace, and I loved hearing her perspective. I think you will too. All right, Kira, welcome to the Worth Your Time podcast. Thank you, Erica. It's great to be here. I'm so glad to be talking to someone all the way on the West Coast where it's so early right now. It is. West Coast is the best coast. It's also the left coast. Yeah, that's true. Uh, how? What What part of California are you in? Southern California, Orange County. Oh, so like the best weather of all time. Oh, yeah. Yes, oh, I'm like so jealous. Best weather, the richest people, the most ridiculous plastic surgery, all of it. Yep. But you're, and you're part of that, right? The richest, most plastic surgery person around? <laughs> Not yet, but I'd be lying if I say I didn't have goals. <laughs> Goals, exactly. As long as you don't um, do a cheating scandal to get your kids into college, I think you'll be fine. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what. That is all of the moms in my sleepy little suburb here are so incensed because college admissions, especially to state schools here in California, is such a competitive process. And it's such a stressful time because everyone around here is all about the grades, all about achievement. You know, it's very achievement oriented area. And they, you know, from the time your kids are five, people around here have their whole futures, you know, (laughs) planned out and they invest so much money in sports programs and tutors and everything just so their kids can have the chance to get into a USC or UCLA, which are really hard schools to get into nowadays. So they are just, everyone is just incensed over it. It's the biggest thing that's happened since Donald Trump's election. Yeah, I, I can't. And it's so hard for me to, to grasp that anyone would ever do this because, you know, here I am, I went to a state school and my dad told me when I was in high school, well, college isn't for everyone if you don't want to go. And I'm sitting here going, if my kid doesn't want to go to a state school, he's definitely on his own. So it's so hard for me to comprehend that someone would go to this length to get their kid into a college. It is. It is. I mean, our son's 16, so we're up against it. And we've had the same conversation with them. Like if you, you don't have to go to college, you can do, if you have a skill that you'd like to learn that you can learn right away or start internship right away, do that. It's not necessary, but we are for sure in the minority. Yeah. Here. Well, let me back yeah. up a little bit and introduce you. Um, we just kind of started talking about a right. random subject, but Hi. I, 
I'm going to do a little intro. Um, You, Kira Davis, I've known you for about, I don't know, probably 10 years. And to me, you are best known as a freelance writer, uh, sometimes a vocal critic of certain political policies. Uh, You're a podcast host of two different podcasts, a mom of two. Uh, You're an actress and most recently a film writer and director of a new movie recently selected for the Toronto Black Film Festival, which is very cool. Congratulations. You. That is so awesome. We're going to talk more about that. Um, So you have your hands in many, many different things. And, you know, because you kind of remind me of myself in a way, just kind of having all these different passions and all these different things that you're doing all the time. Is this like just part of your personality? Do you really enjoy staying busy with this big variety of activities? Yes, I don't like being busy, actually. But I think that for people like us, it's impossible not to be busy. My grandfather was a, um, uh, my, my maternal grandfather was a, um, air force pilot in the Royal Canadian air force. And he also was one of those, he was like an adventurer. He always, he, he never sat still. So even when he retired from the military, um, and retired from, he was a commercial airline pilot for quite a while. Then, then he retired from that. He didn't really retire. Like he always was, um, he, he taught himself how to paint watching Bob, what's his face on PBS. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I forgot his last he, name. Yeah. He went through a phase where he made kites out wow. of newspaper and perfected that. And then he bought a loom, like a big loom, like that takes up a whole room and he learned how to weave rugs, which is something he actually taught me how to do. Um, then he went on to restore old cars and the, like he always, he never stuck to one hobby or passion. He was always moving on because when he mastered something, he he was just a curious type. And I had have definitely inherited that from him. And it's taken me a while to accept that I was never really going to pursue one thing my whole life besides, I guess, motherhood. Yeah. Um, but that, that instead embracing the fact that I do have so many interests and and letting myself explore that. And of course, you know this, Erica, part of that is just having a good support system as well. Like we both have very um, great partners who support what we do and support our endeavors. So um, I, I recognize that that's a huge part in me being able to be as schizophrenic as I am with all the stuff. I do. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely essential. You you can't do it on your own when you have kids. No way. No, no way. Uh, and being a freelance writer, and you, I, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you are able to have kind of a regular gig going on right now. You're writing for Town Hall. You previously wrote for Red State. Yes. You've written for a number of different oh, places, yeah. and and having that um, that ability to write what you want to write gives you a platform to kind of talk about all kinds of different things. And you write about really hot topics, like the topics that are trending today, you're writing about the Green New Deal, race relation, the transgender movement. Um, How do you decide what, how do you choose what to write about? And how do you have the confidence to put your opinion out there on really controversial stuff that you know, you know, you're going to get pushback on? Well, in the beginning, when I first started writing, first started blogging, Back when you first met me, I didn't have the confidence to put out my opinions and I took every response very personally. And then I quickly learned as I gained a little bit of notoriety and and, and publicity, I quickly learned to turn off the comments like I don't read the comments 
and um, just let every piece speak for itself. So sometimes I'll get pushback on Twitter. Um, I often don't engage trolls. Sometimes I do just if I want to make a point, but if something bothers me, you know, there's that handy dandy mute feature on Facebook and Twitter. (laughs) I use that liberally. I don't typically block people, but I'll mute a conversation if it's getting on my nerves. It's just good for your stress levels. And then as far as deciding what to to write about, I just write about what I'm concerned about. Um, I've always been opinionated and that's why I'm an opinion editor. That's how I got into the gig. I, I was an actress, as you mentioned, but I had kids and I wanted to stay home and raise my kids. But for me, that wasn't enough. I was feeling, um, I was struggling with being a stay at home mom. I needed another outlet and I couldn't continue to audition because it's a very time consuming process. So I asked myself, well, what could I do that doesn't cost much that I can do while I'm caring for my children? And blogging was just starting to come up and be popular at that time. You could start a blog for free. And I've always had very strong opinions on politics and culture. It's the kind of family I was raised in. So I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll just start writing down my opinions about things and maybe someday will pay me, someday someone will pay me to tell them those opinions. <laughs> so so your family, I- okay, so you're, from, but you're from Canada, right? You are an immigrant. I am an immigrant. My dad's American, though. My my father was born in Pittsburgh and lived in Washington D.C. Um, I my mom is Canadian, and and that's I was raised on the east coast of Canada. Immigrated to the United States at eighteen. I didn't meet my father until I was about ten or eleven years old. Um, that's probably about the time I fell in love with the U.S. and thought, oh, I'll probably be an American someday. And so as soon as I was able to leave home, I I did that. And you, so you were raised, you said your family talked about politics. Now you are conservative now, but I've heard you say that that hasn't always been the case, that you used to be liberal, you used to be anti-gun, you used to be a lot of different things. So tell me a bit about how you went from one to the other, because that's a big switch. Yeah. I mean, I was all of it, you know, I I was like a, I was a dyed in the wool socialist Canadian as most of us are, Um, (laughs) like anti-gun, pro-abortion. I, my, both my parents are, are atheists or were, um, when I was growing up. And then, um, my mom is actually very politically active. Even to this day, she's, she's a senior citizen, but she'll be out there in front of her representative's offices with signs. If she doesn't like something, she's still really active, but she always encouraged me to be engaged in the process. One thing she always told me growing up was that your vote is not a right. It's a privilege. And only people who don't have the right to vote understand what a privilege that is. I mean, her, my mom's white, my dad's black. and They got together in the 70s when that was very taboo. And there were a couple of times when they were both stopped at the border trying to cross uh, him, come to Canada or her go visit him in the U.S. and were separated and not able to cross because um, the authorities were suspicious just that this black man was with this white woman. So she'd seen that up close hmm. and, and was always like very conscious of being able to vote, but she's a socialist. She's a, she's a hippie liberal. Although I think liberal, the meaning of that has changed these days. I don't think she likes the direction her feminism and her liberalism has gone in. But anyway, that's how I was. I was raised just very left wing. And, um, got married at 24, 
and moved to Gary, Indiana with my husband. That's where he and his family are, are, are from, which is, is a largely black population and um, uh, a good portion of the population lives under the poverty line. So it's basically an inner city mm-hmm. um, kind of area. And his father is a pastor and he was the first black man that I had ever heard call himself a conservative. And uh, we used to get into political discussions all the time. And he gave me a lot of room to express some pretty dumb ideas and not judge me. And but he always challenged me. He challenged me to research the stories that I was taking for granted in the media. He challenged me to research the um, the point of view of the reporters and and um, at the same time, I was running a program in the inner city, an after school program for for elementary age kids and middle school age kids. And I was having an up close and personal view of how all the policies that I had supported all my life actually worked. And I realized they don't. And I was like living it finally after all these years. Like I wasn't just talking about it. I was living it and I was watching kids living it and I was watching how it had affected the black community. And I said to myself, this stuff doesn't work. So that began my slide away from liberalism towards conservatism. And I think the day I realized I was a conservative, I had borrowed my father-in-law's car and he had it on the local talk radio station. And I didn't know how to like, I didn't want to change his settings on his radio. So I just let it play. But I was in the car for hours for like two hours. And um, this guy was on the radio and he was talking about opportunity and he was talking about how uh, the difference between opportunity of, of um, outcome versus, you know, the opportunity to achieve and how America is the opportunity and, and, and how um, welfare like squelches opportunity and, and think about how good you feel when you earn something and how the, the pride and the dignity that that brings, that's a very real thing. And that's what, and I, I'm, it was this whole thing and I'm like nodding along. I'm going, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with this. Like, I don't, I don't hear people say this stuff very much, but I think I totally agree with it. And then he, then he goes, okay, we've got to go to commercial. I've been Rush Limbaugh. I was like, oh my God, what? I've been listening to Rush Limbaugh. He's the devil. And I think that's the day I realized, like, maybe I don't have the full story. Well, I love that your father-in-law was the catalyst for this and that it wasn't um, any pushing um, necessarily in a negative way, but he was kind and gracious to you. And I think that is such a great example for today where we're seeing such the opposite of that all the time, whether it be a Facebook post or mean Twitter post or whatever, people disowning friends for their political views. It's like no one ever has made progress um, turning someone to their side by by behaving that way. And so it's so interesting that your father-in-law didn't take that tack. And because he was able to do that, you were able to have the space to explore yourself and think about yes. it. In a, Absolutely. In a made, and, made I, a and I hear a lot of conservatives say that. Too. I mean, this is not just like a liberal problem. Conservatives do it too, where it's just like, I'm, you know what, I'm done with that person. I'm not going to, no, I don't have time to talk with idiots. I've cut all liberals out of my life. And it's like, well, no, you know, your, your patience can pay off. You know, it, it, it's grace that really 
will help people feel comfortable exploring ideas. And you can't combat a bad idea if that bad idea isn't allowed to be expressed in the first place. And now outside of the, um, you know, you were talking about kind of some economic issues and economic opportunity, but I have heard you also talk about your stance on gun control. And I think you said that it was kind of becoming a mom that had an effect on your thought process there. Can you tell me about that change? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I was raised a Canadian and we don't really like guns. And I'd always said I would never have a gun in my house. I would never allow one, uh, especially if I had children. And um, I thought I I thought I was anti-Second Amendment. I have to admit now that I just really didn't know what the Second Amendment said, but I was pretty sure I was anti-Second Amendment. I'm guessing a lot of people don't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yes, most definitely. And um, it would have been around the time that we were preparing to move out here to California. And my husband had to come out four months in advance of us, our family, my, my son and daughter who were toddlers at the time, very young at the time. And they needed to finish school and we needed to wrap up affairs in Gary. So he had to come out ahead of us and he was living me basically in the middle, middle of the hood with two kids. And we were having a um, a particularly bad time on our street with home invasion. It's very violent home invasions outside of the typical crime in the area. And I was in my home one night when he was out right before he left and there was a noise downstairs and I was terrified to go downstairs. I had nothing to protect myself with, but I knew I had to go check out what the sound was. And I realized like, if that's somebody down there, I have nothing. I didn't even have my phone with me. I didn't, I don't know where it was. I was really kind of up a Creek without a paddle. I, I managed to get myself downstairs. I had a bottle of uh, Windex in, a, in one hand and I found a broom and I guess I was going to, I don't know, clean somebody to death if I <laughs> down there. But um, it turned out it was just a window that had been blown open, but it made me think, that I had been defenseless and more importantly, my children were defenseless. So my husband came home that evening and I said, you know what? I, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but, um, I think I need a gun and I, I just don't feel safe. I just don't feel, uh, like I could protect our children if something happened. And we lived in an area where the police don't really come right away. And in fact, they tell you that, like, unless there is a, a real emergency, like you can respect, expect a response time in maybe 10 to 12 minutes. So it's a long time to wait when you've got a gun to your, your head or mm-hmm. your family. So he said, fine, if that's what you want, then I'll sign you up for lessons and you can take lessons so you can learn how to do this the right way. And then we'll go buy you a gun. And that's what I did. And my first day in the instruction session, it was led by this, uh, I have no other word for her. She was like a total redneck. Her name was Deb. (laughs) Deb the redneck. Yes. Deb was a total redneck. She was dressed head to toe in denim. (laughs) And she had cowboy boots on and she had this perm, this ridiculous perm. Don't they call that a Canadian tuxedo? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And she had this drawl and she went around the classroom and she said, tell me why you're here before (laughs) we get started. There's about eight people in the class and, it got to me and I said, well, I don't really want to be here. I don't really believe in guns and having guns in the house, but I live in Gary and blah, blah, blah. And this is what's going on. And she was like, honey, let me tell you something. I, 
I don't care what you believe about guns. You're a mother and you have the right to do everything you can to protect your family against danger. So it is absolutely the right thing for you to be here. And you know what? I was like sold. Thank you, Deb. That's like what I needed to hear. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so that's kind of where once I learned how to use a gun, I realized, oh, yeah, it really is just a tool. Can't get up by itself. Can't walk by itself. You know, so I really changed my views. And then I started looking at the Second Amendment. And after that, because I was curious and realized that I probably had this whole thing wrong. Well, that's a good point. I think a lot of people make that um, distinction or maybe have a change of heart when they have kids. And especially if they're in some kind of dangerous situation like that. Um, so I wanted to ask you, I, I came across a video of you talking recently about race, race relations in America. And you were talking about how racial tensions have intensified in the country Um, you know, which some people think that's weird. You know, we had our first black president eight years of Obama, but it seemed like things actually got worse over that time. And and now it's almost, it's almost intensified even in the past couple of years. Um, what are your thoughts on how the conversations and how the tensions have, uh, how they've intensified, why they've intensified and are are people overreacting, underreacting? What are your thoughts on where things stand right now? Well, it's an interesting time in our country. I think that eight years of Obama has actually driven us to this point, to be honest, because I, I can tell you that um, his rhetoric was divisive. Uh, some people always said that he was um, a great orator. I don't, I'm a black American. <clears throat> I, I, I never got the Obama thing to be honest with you, but, um, I get it that some people were like inspired by that. I mean, my dad, that was the first politician that he gave ever gave money to. Cause he was like, I never thought I would see a black man in, in the presidency in my whole life. So that was the first political campaign he'd ever donated to in his life. I would like to tell you that my hippie liberal dad, after doing that for Obama became a Trump voter. So, really? Yes. Why? So he did. He, he did not like Obama. He thought Obama was a liar. He thought that he he was suspicious that Obama would. W- he felt that Obama was very vague about his past. He didn't like that. So as time went on, he 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 didn't like. He did, felt like Obama wasn't very transparent. And then he didn't like the rhetoric that Obama was was spouting. He said he always felt like he was being scolded by Obama. And he was like, I, this guy, I don't even know this guy. Like, where did he come from? So it just, over the years, he just didn't like that um, kind of Harvard upper crust. It's everything that, Obama turned out to be everything that my dad kind of railed against in the 60s and 70s. Mm. So, yeah. And he liked Trump's bluntness. Mm. So I was sho- I was shocked to, to find yeah. that. But, but. I see that a lot. I see a lot more in minorities than people think. And, um, but I do think that when it comes to race relations, I think it's difficult because there's two pieces to this. There's what happens in the real world and what happens online. And online is such a condensed and, uh, vicious bubble that it can feel like the loudest voices have the most, represent the majority. And I don't believe that to be true. It is my sincere belief that most people in this country are just going about their business day to day. They're not worried about getting 
shot by someone of another race. They're not worried about these imaginary MAGA hot hat wearing people running around with nooses. You know, they're not being vicious towards their neighbor. They're working together. They're going out together. They're living in the same space just fine. That's not happening online. And it makes people feel like I think things are more divided when they are. Now, that being said, I I think the real problem with race relations is a, is a lack of, of grace because we have come to the point where we've eliminated a lot of the physical barriers to integration. I mean, that work's been done for us by my father's generation and his father's generation, you know, and, and we black Americans can vote. We can live wherever we want. I mean, look at us. We live in the suburbs. We live amongst all kinds of white people here in the suburbs. <laughs> just fine. Um, we, we can go to college. We can, you know, there's economic disparities and there we can have discussions about that in a larger forum, but that, that hard work has been done. And now there's a lot of hurt and misunderstanding and miscommunication that needs to be addressed. And I think both sides of the issue, whatever side you stand on, I think there is a severe lack of grace. And I say this over and over again, any, any column you see me write on race or any video you see, see me make about race, I will say the same thing. I will say we can never have an honest conversation about race if each party is not willing to come to the table and say, I'm giving up my right to be offended. Mm. And too few people are, are willing to do that. And I mean you black people and I mean you white people and I mean you conservatives and I mean you liberals and I mean you libertarians and I mean I mean you redheads and I mean you brunettes. I mean everybody, every single person, no matter what has happened to them in their past, has to be willing to come to the table and say, I'm giving up my right to be offended no matter how crazy what you say sounds. Because again, as I said before, Erica, you can't combat bad ideas if you're not even allowed to to hear them. Yeah, you need to be free to have conversations, like honest conversations. And like, even if you, someone does come across as bigoted or racist when they say something, if they can't say it, you can't ever fix it. Exactly. Exactly. You get it. I get it. And I, I notice, I notice you calling out both sides on social media sometimes when something happens and you say something and you know, you obviously have a ton of conservative followers and sometimes you're like, hey guys, uh, you're wrong this time. And I think it's good that you do that. You do that. Um, and I don't know, it's just, it's always such a, there's always just so much tension. It stresses me out. And I always just want to, <laughs> I want to do the right thing and say the right thing and think the right thing. And sometimes it's just so hard to know what that is. Um, so I've personally tried to do a lot of research and reading and have a lot of empathy and compassion and and not be offended, like you said. Um, I think it takes a lot of work, though. And um, <laughs> I don't yeah, know. You can be offended. Like, I'm not saying don't be offended. I'm saying you have to give up your right to be offended. So, for instance, I had this conversation. I was on Fox News recently on the Steve Hilton show, uh, which is called The Next Revolution, actually. And I was on with Teslin Figaro, who's a black representative for the Bernie Sanders campaign. And I had this very, she shut, Charlie Kirk was on that show as well. And we, we delved into race briefly and she shut him down immediately. She wouldn't even let him speak. And during the break, her and I kind of got into a little bit of an argument. And I said, look, Teslin, I get where you're coming from. But again, just to repeat what, what I've just said to you, you know, we've got to come to the table with a measure of grace. We've got to be able to hear the things that are hurtful so we can respond to them. That means we got to 
give up our right to be offended. And she said, but and I said, see, that's the problem. Everybody wants to start their response, but with but and everybody thinks that they're the one that gets to have the but. And that is the problem. You don't get the but. What? You have to be an and person. Well, I think Ben Shapiro was on a show recently talking about, oh, he was on Dr. Phil with Andy No from. Oh, really? They were on Dr. Phil? Yes. Oh, I had to look that up. It, it, yeah. It was Andy, Ben, and maybe Dave Rubin. And they were talking about the Jesse Smollett, like, fake hate crime mm-hmm. case. They were talking mm-hmm. about why do people fake hate crimes. Right. And then Dr. Phil actually went on Joe Rogan later, too, so you can look up that interview with Joe I, Rogan. I listened to Dr. Phil on the Dax Shepard podcast, but I will listen to the Joe Rogan one, too. Oh. I actually was on the Dr. Phil show a few years ago. You were? Way. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Send me the link. I want to watch that. I don't have a link. He At that time, they, they, they record, like, four shows a day. So at that time, it was like, if you don't record it on your own, you're out of luck. So Okay, wait. So what were you talking about? I was there with Anna Maria Hoffman. And, yeah. Um, do you know her? Like Gabriella? I know who she is. I know Gabriella. Yeah. yeah. So I was there with Anna Maria. She she had got the invite. We were It was a show on modesty, and we were there with Lacey Green, who was the feminist YouTuber, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and a couple other people. So we were talking about modesty. So I was the conservative foil. So. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I can't believe so I missed that it. somehow in your history, but <laughs> yeah. I, I never did get a, I never did get a, a copy. I never oh, did find a video. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, it, it, was, it was a dumb show. Anyway, I got lots to say about Dr. Phil <laughs> about the show, <laughs> but um, anyways, but Shapiro said it had a really good point about how there is um, we've stripped away achievement for the younger generation. Generation, you know, like the participation awards and, you know, we've stripped away um, merit based earning. And so the way to achieve some kind of special um, recognition is to is to be a victim because then you win all the games, you know, then you win all the people, all eyes are on you there. So there is there's a reward in being a victim these days. You get retweets, you get likes, you get uh you know, podcast interviews. You, you get, get uh, intersectionality points is what I heard someone call them the other day. Good. That's good. So yeah, there, there is victimhood has turned into, it used to be, there used to be a time when people would say, I'm no victim. People have had horrible experiences. Like that was a very common refrain among people who have been victims of real violence or real un- injustice. They would say, I'm no victim. I'm not going to live life like a victim. And we don't hear that much anymore. Most most people are out there going, I'm a victim. I'm a victim. Yeah, it's so interesting. I always notice this, that, you know, the thing that you'll hear a politician say, and hey, I mean, I would, any politician would do the same, and it's from both sides. It's always like, how, you know, poor of an upbringing can you have had? How horrific of a background can you have had to say, you know, I am, I understand your problems and... Um, that's, I guess, the way that you connect with people. But it is, it is, you know, it's never helpful to be like, I had a great family and a great background, and you know, I didn't ever struggle, type of thing. Yeah, yeah that's never. No one ever was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah that's, yay. You know? Well, I, I want struggle. 
that too, as a parent. I want like, to ask you about a couple other things. Um, okay. So really quickly, uh, we, you know, you and I, both conservatives, both Republican, vote Republican generally, um, but you <laughs> lived through the 2016 election, as I did, and the split that happened yes, among... Live. <laughs> um, yes, amongst the right uh, when it came to Trump. And there were many people that when it came down to him becoming the nominee, of course, you had the never Trump, the anti-Trump, you know, the people that refused to vote for him and this, you know, the, the you know, the Christian community, you know, inside the Christian community split. Um, and then when it became apparent that he would get the nomination, were you supportive of him before the nomination? And then also, I heard you say the other day, we saw that Eric Erickson has now said that he voting for Trump in 2020 when he was so, uh, you know, strongly against it in 2016. Um, so what do you think when you've heard conservatives who, and, I, and you're a Christian, so I ask you from this position, what do you think when you hear conservatives who are essentially against Trump say that it's not Christian or it's against Christian values to support him? I've a, I have a real problem with Eric Erickson <laughs> over over this. I, I worked briefly for him and um, was really turned off to hear him say um, behind the scenes, not publicly. And, and this is not I'm not revealing anything that's that's too private. I mean, this is nothing that he's not said publicly. But um, just to say, like, I question the morality of Christians who who voted for Trump. And, you know, I don't think you can be a Christian and vote for Trump. And I just, you know, I, I didn't vote for Trump. It's the first time I, I was not happy with the whole Trump thing. I I couldn't believe that this was going to be the guy. I really struggled with it. I eventually took time to understand Trump voters because I wanted to know what I was missing. What, what What was I not getting? So that helped me. But also, this is the first time in my own family where my husband and I have been split on our vote. Typically, because I'm in politics, my husband says, uh, who are we voting for? And then that's who he goes and votes for. He's pretty apolitical. He's conservative, but he's pretty apolitical. Mm-hmm. This time he was like, well, I'm voting for Trump. And I'm like, what? No, we're not. We're not voting for Trump. He was like, no, you're not voting for Trump. I'm voting for Trump because I don't want Hillary Clinton. I don't want a Hillary Clinton as president. My father-in-law, who is maybe one of the best people I've ever known, who has served other people his whole life, who has served in the kingdom of God his whole life, who has given up everything, who has laid to rest two adults sons and yet has still gone on to help other people selflessly for people like Eric and others to say that that man, everything he's done in his life is negated because of one vote in one election cycle. No, I'm not going to accept that. I'm not going to accept that at all. And I think that's rude. I think it's disrespectful. And I think frankly, that is uncharitable and that is unchristian. We're talking about the politics of the world versus service to the kingdom. And they aren't always the same thing. So I, I, I have a real problem. And I, and I had an argument with Eric over it. We, we argued bitterly about it. And he went on to say that basically, yeah, like my father-in-law's whole life, this man in his 60s, his whole life, all the service that he did to his community didn't matter. So when Eric changed his mind and said, and all Eric was saying, was, look, I don't like Trump. I'm not like a supporter of Trump, but this is a binary choice. Like it's one or the other. 
And I can't support with watching what the Democrats have done to Kavanaugh and other um, op- opposers over the last couple of years. I can't in good conscience, conscience support anything that would put a Democrat in office and put the Democrats in power. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's great. Yay. Good for you, Eric. By the way, how about an apology to all those people who who got that two years before you did? Yeah, I think that I guess I didn't know the extent of maybe what he had said. Because when I saw him do that, and I saw a few people saying, oh, yeah, are you going to apologize? I, um, you know, my response was kind of like, well, in his defense, not realizing, you know, kind of the extent of what he had said, you know, we didn't necessarily have a, any good reason to think that Donald Trump was going to put into place good policies. Like, he can say whatever he wants on the campaign, but he is a former Democrat. He's former, formerly 100% pro-choice. He's formally all these things and has no, really, allegiance to this other than he wants to win the presidency. And so now I can say, okay, he has put some good people on the court. He's, he's implemented some policies that I agree with. And so I see now that the vote for certain issues, if you voted for Trump, that they it is paying off in that way. Um, but for me, I had no reason to believe that he would actually do those things. <laughs> you know what I mean? I and I didn't either. And I and and it's like I get that point of view. I totally do. And I was I was right there. I, I remember I had a friend who was like, I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised by Trump. And I was like, okay, whatever. But um, as the years have gone on, I I've taken the same journey. I think you have Erica. And so that's fine. Like I totally get that. And, and I, and I'm willing to stipulate that that is a legitimate point of view that he had no history to go on, that he did lie about some things or he exaggerated. And he has like a scandalous past with like Trump university and obviously Mm -hmm. his personal moral life. (laughs) Exactly. So no, like there, I have no issues with anybody who is like, I can't support this guy. If you're conservative, great. Good for you. If you're conservative and you can't support him, I totally get that. What I didn't care for is somebody dismissing the entirety of a person's life because of one vote. Oh and yeah, no, I don't. I don't either. That makes me sick, and that's why I. That's why I thought Eric. Eric should have issued an apology to all the people that he insulted for the last two years about that. Yeah. Now. There are people like you, Erica, who have said it doesn't matter. I mean, at least he's where he is where he is now. At least he made the journey. So, you know, I'm willing to accept that. At least, Eric, you've made the journey. So I'm going to leave it there. I'm not going to demand any more apologies. <laughs> just leave well, it there. Uh, you know, either way, though, just on this thought, it just it just infuriates me when people are written off for being a supporter of Trump or for working for the administration. I know so many people that work for the administration that are amazing people. And I just think to myself, why would you not want these good people in there trying to make good policy and do good things, especially if you don't like the president? You know, Um, it's it's really... It's, we both have friends who who went to work for the campaign. I mean, one of the first people that I personally knew that was out in front was Katrina Pearson mm-hmm. talking for him. And I was watching friends on Facebook just tear her down. And I it made me so mad. I'm like, Katrina's a single mom. You know, she's been fighting for, for work and for publicity her whole life. She started with the TV party she started with the ted cruz campaign and she's got personal like she you might have personal issues with her like people have personal issues guess what people in politics aren't all great all the time but i was like 
honestly, how would you tell a, a single mother not to take one of the most prestigious jobs she could ever have? I know. Anyway, okay. Well, I wanted to get through that a little bit, but I do want to ask you um, about your movie. Uh, how? Tell me about your movie. Tell me how it came to be. It's about Harriet Tubman. Very cool. Um, how did you make this happen? And now it's you know being shown at a film festival. And how do you even get into this business? <laughs> well, I've always been quote in the business. I, I started out as an actor. Um, politics is, it was the diversion, <laughs> but now my kids are a little older and they don't need me day to day. Uh, you know, you know, they can come home from school and fix themselves something to eat. And, and so I have a little more flexibility and freedom with my schedule. So I'm kind of getting back into the arts and I found a grant, a group that was offering grants for stories that, um, reflected, uh, themes of self-determination, equality, and liberty. And I thought, oh, Harriet Tubman embodies all of that. I knew somebody who ran the, the, it was, it's an artist development grant out of LA. I knew somebody who ran it and had mentioned that I was interested and they called me up and they were like, well, what do you, what do you got? We'd love to see you come through, but what do you got? And I said, well, I have this, I had, a, at the time I had like a comedy sketch about Harriet Tubman. And then they were like, well, we kind of like that, but, you know, it might just be not topical enough. You know, is, is there a way you can rework that story? And I said, well, you know, I've always wanted to, I, I love taking historical figures and turning them on their head, kind of like mm -hmm. introducing them in a new perspective. So I said, I've, I've had this idea for a while. I don't know. Does it sound dumb? I've had this idea of reimagining Harriet Tubman as an action hero and kind mm. of giving her the action hero treatment. And they were like, great, we love it. Write it. <laughs> and uh, I was like, okay, um, I don't know anything about writing scripts. I brought a, uh, a friend of mine and a colleague of mine on board, James Lanka, um, and asked him to help write this script with me. It was, it was my baby, but I just, I just needed that support. So he came alongside. We, we had a mentor. We got a Hollywood screenwriter mentor. He mentored us through the process. We got $10,000 to make the film. Filmed it over three days in the middle of the California desert with an amazing crew. And it's, it's, a, story. it's, a, it's a story of Harriet Tubman along the Underground Railroad. But it's really a reimagining of her as an action hero. So she shoots a lot. She kicks a lot of butt. I she, feel like this is she's awesome. Not, she's not the Harriet Tubman that you learn about in school. So I feel like this could have much wider appeal than just the Toronto Film Festival. Yeah, well, we've we've we're working on the pilot script. We actually imagine this as a, as a TV series. So we have some representation now. We're working on a pilot script, and we're working to get meetings studios so we can pitch this as a, as a TV idea. And it's a way I like to keep this separate from my politics. So you're one of the only people that I've actually spoken to about this film. Um, I don't even write under, I noticed that you had a different name on the credits. I do. And so you won't see me publicizing it a lot on my political channels. It, I mean, I don't, it's not a secret because one doesn't need to dig very hard to find that I'm the same person, but I <laughs> I do prefer not to promote those things along the same channels because Harriet is her own story. She has her own point of view and, and she has her own qualities that I don't want to get mixed up with the social media frenzy of politics yeah. today. And that's so, um, 
that is so related to Hollywood and politics in general, uh, just because we know that if you are conservative in Hollywood, generally you don't tell people about it because you can lose jobs. Right. Right. And that's the thing. And I, I haven't even really gotten going yet. <laughs> so I, I definitely, like I say, I, I don't expect it to be a secret and I don't expect people to keep it a secret, but it's not something that I would prefer to be publicly, you know, blatant. Well, the Worth Your Time podcast audience is not that big. So <laughs> yet. But I, yet. I bet they're engaged and that's fine. And, and, and please, you know, by all means, go check out. You can go to TubmanMovie.com. You can find follow us, uh, just, just follow Tubman movie on the Twitters or whatever and keep up and share the trailers. Like you don't have to talk about the director or what you heard, you know, you heard her say on this radio or that just even to share it is such a big deal because you're sharing the story of a woman, a black woman who embodied individual spirit, liberty, uh, freedom. Yeah. She was a hero. She was an American hero. And that is the the message that we want to get across with this kind of reimagining of who she was is that she wasn't just a slave rescuer. She wasn't just this, you know, former slave who did some really hard stuff. She was an American hero and she deserves to be treated with the same kind of reverence that we treat our founding fathers. She really is. I consider her to be kind of a founding mother. I love that. Oh, that's so good. Uh, well, I could see this on the big screen, so. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> red carpet, get me like a, when you get on the red carpet, I want one of those tickets where you get to stand on the side and like shake hands with the celebrities. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> which, fair speaking enough. of, speaking of, that, that leads me to end, end of the podcast questions, which, Great. you know, outside of Dr. Phil, who you've already met, mm-hmm. uh, who, which celebrity would you love to have dinner and drinks with and why? This was most so tough for me, Erica, because I have a firm belief that most celebrities are disappointing human beings. Probably. Yeah. And I think it's just the nature of the beast, like what what fame and celebrity cost you and what it does. And then I live in Southern California, so I come in contact pretty regularly. I mean, that's just, you know, they live here. They they live around here. They're our, our kids. You see go to them. They're just like at Kroger and stuff. Yeah, exactly. So uh, like my daughter goes to school with the kids of many celebrities that, that you would know by name. But, um, I find generally when you meet them, like they, most of them don't really want to talk about themselves because they have to do it all the time. They're very standoffish because, you know, you don't know who to trust. So, and, and then there's this whole weirdness that comes with celebrity. So I really struggled with it because I was like, I could say Shonda rhymes cause she's a writer. Yeah. And I would love like sit down and pick her brain. But I know that the Shonda Rhimes I would get at the dinner table is not the Shonda Rhimes that I imagine would imagine her to be. That being said, and I'm sorry if this is a cop out, but the celebrity I would love to sit down and have dinner and drinks with is Patricia Heaton. And I say that because I have had dinner and drinks with Patricia Heaton and she's everything that really? you hope. Yeah. Cool. She's everything you hope that she would be. She is gracious. She's funny. She's um, smart. She's charitable. Uh, she's, she's like a regular human being. Like you can have a regular conversation about her with her about regular things like your family and work and school. So I, I would say Patty Heaton. You know, it's funny because the person that I interviewed last week for an episode mm-hmm. that is coming out in the future, 
um, lives in LA and is an actress. And she didn't say that as her answer, but she did talk about her as someone that she wanted to be like as an actress. So that's funny that she's been mentioned twice in a row. Patty's a fantastic example because she never stopped being a mom to be an actor. And she says like, one of the things she'll say is I don't like it when people go too hard on Hollywood because it's given me the opportunity to be a, a present mom for my kids and work. And she said she's only had good experiences. She's always every set she's been on. They've welcomed her children. They've welcomed her family. They she's been able to have her kids in her trailer between takes and and help with homework. And she's like a typical average mom also. Like she goes to the games and she, you know, makes the lunches. And so she's have like, you, have you talked to it. her about the um, pushback she gets for being vocal about politics? Yeah. So she, she really tries to uh, keep it general. So she, you're, you're never going to see her tweet about like Donald Trump or who to vote for, but she'll tweet about things like she's pro-life. She's fiercely pro-life. That's actually how I met her in a pro-life group. Um, she's, so she'll talk about that. She also is an ambassador for uh, world vision. So Mm. she'll talk about issues of poverty. So she'll talk about issues. She's not going to talk about politics and and she's not going to judge you on your politics. So that's how she kind of keeps that. Yeah. I do see her, her pro-life tweets pretty frequently. So I love that. I love that she does that. Um, She's a practicing Catholic. Yeah. So what, do you have any book, movie, uh, TV show, podcast, something that you've read, done, seen recently to recommend that you think people would like? Okay. Um, Book, I'm right in the middle of um, Tim Keller's book, Pastor Tim Keller. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see. I meant to pull up the, it's a book on prayer and it is called, called Prayer experiencing <laughs> awe and intimacy with God. I don't know. I a book about prayer called prayer. <laughs> <laughs> experiencing awe and intimacy with God. So prayer has been a thing I've been struggling with a lot lately. And um, I've had my ideas of how to pray. Um, but I wanted kind of a refresher course. And so I, I've really come to look at it in a whole different light now that I've read this book. So if you're interested in prayer, if you're a person of faith and, and this is an area that interests you, I highly recommend this book by Tim Keller on prayer. Okay. Um, yeah. Podcasts. My favorite podcast. One of my favorite podcasts is called unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It is a podcast, uh, Justin Briarly. I think I've mentioned it to you before, Erica. Um, Justin Briarly is a host out of great Britain and it is a, it's a Christian podcast, but it is a podcast on apologetics. So every week he hosts a debate between a Christian and a non-Christian and they cover all kinds of issues from, you know, the biology of, of babies to uh, everything like science and creation and philosophy and, and it's British. So it's all very polite, but you learn (laughs) so much and he welcomes guests from a different point of view and there, and there's no judgment and there's no condescension. They're just having a, a legitimate discussion. So I can't, can't recommend that podcast. I am all about really. those civil discussions lately. Yes. Um, what is one piece of advice you want to carry on your children to carry on into adulthood? Always be where you're supposed to be. That's like the, I, I had a, I had a boyfriend like 150 years ago before I was married and uh, it was just a dumb 
little relationship. But he gave me a piece of advice once that really stuck with me. He said um, his brother was a, a, a struggling drug addict and uh, was out of jail. He had spent some time in prison, had just got out. And one day he, he, his brother asked him to drive him over to the projects. And he knew, like, there's only one reason my brother wants to go over to the projects is to get drugs. And uh, I knew I shouldn't have taken him over there. I knew it. I knew I had no business driving him there. <coughs> but he, my little brother. And uh, and I wanted to help him out. So he said he had to go see his, his baby's mama or something. So he took him. But the whole time he was driving, he was like, I know I should not be taking him here. So he dropped his brother off at the front door. And his brother said, I'll be right back. Go away from me on the playground over there. So he went to the playground and as he was walking towards the, he was walking to a bench to sit down on a shootout ensued between two rival gangs. And he had to hide behind the slide and he said, bullets were bouncing off the slide. And I just remember thinking to myself, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be here. And he said, since that day, I knew that you should always be where you're supposed to be. And I think there's a little voice inside all of us that tells us when a situation is right or wrong. And it could be a relationship. It could be a geographical location. It could be a job or a school that we're supposed to go to. And we know if someone invites us somewhere and we know, you know, that only bad things are going to happen there, that voice speaks to all of us and tells us, no, you don't belong there. You mm-hmm. don't belong there. And and that has – I have carried that simple but nuanced piece of advice my whole life. And that is what I would want my children to carry too always be where you're supposed to be. That's a very um, palpable and tangible example to hold on to for that. All yeah. right. Who is a public figure you would consider a role model? Um, I don't have any public figures that are role model, but my father-in-law is like my biggest role model. I think he's, he's one of my best friends. He's um, my biggest fan. You know, he watch. my husband doesn't watch hardly. I'm on Fox News. He, I'm like, oh, did you see me? He's like, oh, no, I totally forgot. Like, he, <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't watch the news. He doesn't. He doesn't. My father-in-law archives everything I do. He shares everything I do. He, he's been married for 60 years. Um, he lost two adult sons in a tragic car accident about 20 years ago, oh. but has still gone on to serve the Lord to in, in with joy, you know, um, has still gone on to, to help people. He's such a a fine example of grace of operating from a place of grace rather than resentment um he's so inclusive and welcoming and that is the person that i want to be so i'm sorry again i feel like this is another cop out but because in my line of work i have met so many public figures i guess i know that they're almost all disappointing yeah no but that's I, not a cop out i love i like that answer it was very <laughs> Gave yeah, a good understanding of why you would give that answer. Pastor Vic Davis. That is his name. Pastor Victor Davis. He's an Indiana boy, you know, um, spent most of his life in Arizona, uh, excuse me, in Gary, Indiana, although now they're snowbirds. They've moved to Phoenix. Ah, um, yeah. Well, you know, I'm in Indiana and my husband's from Arizona, yeah. so we have that connection. <laughs> oh, where's your husband from in Arizona? He is from um, Sierra Vista. Which is just south of uh, Phoenix. Okay. Yeah. It's on the border of Mexico. So he grew up. Once you spent winter in Indiana, you can. Yeah, he's not a fan. He's not a fan. (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame Um, him. How often are you on Fox? I know I saw you were on Kennedy last week. 
Uh, I wasn't on Kennedy. I was on with Kennedy. Oh, with on, Kennedy. Yeah. On uh, the, the next revolution with Steve Hilton. I'm not on that often, you know, here and there. Um, some people, you know, like to like Steve Hilton loves having me on there. Um, cause I'm kind of goofy. Um, I don't take everything too seriously. So I'm, I'm typically like just the lighthearted relief, but yeah, from time to time. Well, I know you've got to get to work and I thank you for taking the time today. And I hope to, I hope at some point to see you again soon. Anyone else love that conversation with Kira? I just love her passion and her honesty. It was so great to get her perspective on a few things. Please don't forget to check out her podcast, Smart Girl Politics. Check out that Harriet Tubman movie as well. I think that is such a cool idea, and I can totally see that going to the big screen someday. I mean, think about it. Harriet Tubman is a hero. She could be the star of a you know of our next Oscar-winning film. So I hope that you'll check that out. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would ask that you go ahead and open up your iTunes app and leave me a rating and review. I appreciate it so much and I will see it. So thanks again if you are able to help out. See you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.